This is Deep Dives, and I'm your host, Matt Samuels. We're joined again by our executive producer and our opening act, Miles Gross. Miles, welcome back. Thank you, Matthew. What an honor to be back on the show. Well, thanks for making the time. I know uh, your schedule is, is incredibly busy uh, doing God knows what, but uh, thank you for thank you for being here. So our guest this week is State Senator uh, Will Haskell, representing the great state of Connecticut, and that's in, in District 26. And uh, just an incredibly impressive guy. You know, we'll, 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 we'll certainly learn more about him, um, you know, during the interview. But at, at the age of 24, just accomplishing incredible things. Uh, seems like he's, you know, he's already lived a, a lifetime in the Senate. Um, and, you know, he's, and, he's, and he's just 24 years old. So uh, really looking forward to, to talking to Will. What, what was your impression, Miles? You, you listened in on the interview. What were your impressions of Will? Yeah, it was really interesting to hear like how much he's accomplished uh, only at the age of 24. So young. I'm actually 24. Um, and I can't say I've accomplished as much as he has. You know, I'm working in corporate America. So that's something to talk about. But no, it's very impressive. And it's very interesting to hear his perspective on what's going on, uh, not only in the state of Connecticut, but in the country and the world and what we're going through every day. Mm. Yeah, no, he's he's. He, he's he's incredibly impressive, um, and uh, yeah, he's got a lot to say. Big initiatives, he wants to accomplish, you know, massive things, and uh, really has a has a you know has an amazing way of kind of seeing issues and and working to you know to 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 solve uh, you know solve solve the problems that that uh, you know that that currently exist. So. Looking forward to that. Were, were you, Miles, were you a student government guy in growing up high school? Were you ever, you know, class president? Was any of that stuff? Yeah, I wasn't in any of that, actually. <laughs> but uh, I wish I was. It's um, A couple of my friends were, and it was pretty, pretty cool to hear some of the trips they got to go on and go against other schools um, and just talk about, I guess, different politics and things that were going on during the times. Um, but yeah, I was, I was very busy with sports uh, in high school and um, that wasn't a huge interest of mine to be a part of, but no, it's definitely pre pretty interesting and sounds like a great thing to be a part of. So you, you couldn't have been like the captain of the, of the football team and the, and the class uh, treasurer. You couldn't, no, you couldn't, you no, couldn't multitask. I'm, no, it's only, you can only do that in like high school musical when you can do, you can be on Broadway and you can be a sports athlete at the same time. It's very hard to do both. Right. I, I commend a lot of the people that can. Right. Well, after all those concussions, I probably, you know, you probably don't know where you are at this point. So, yeah, but I'll be getting a, a big paycheck in a couple of years when I, when I can't figure out where I am. Right. <laughs> Were you ever a part of student government? I was I was not. I, I, host, I hosted a, I was busy hosting radio shows late. Oh, late you night. did a radio show. I didn't know I, that. I had a radio show. Very for successful. For the school or for, for the city or the town? Or what, what was it for? It through, uh, through the local, through the high school radio, Staples High School radio network. We had. Wow. We had a show. And I think, uh, I don't know, we don't, to this day, we don't know if anyone listens. It's un, unclear. You couldn't uh, measure it back then. You couldn't measure who was listening, right? We didn't, we had no ability. So, you know, wow. we, we, 
we did it as if no one was listening. And I think that was, that was probably for the best. <laughs> well, did you cover uh, big topics like uh, our guest had to uh, talk about all the time now today? Like, I mean, so- something similar to maybe COVID or legalization of marijuana. I don't know. What, I, what I kind of topics it, were, you, were you talking about? I don't think it ever got to the, to the serious this level of, you know, fart, beyond fart jokes and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, making fun of, uh, I don't know, teachers. The, uh, the, the teachers <laughs> and, and, you know, the ridiculous, ridiculousness of just being a high school kid in high school. That, that was, right, right. I, I can't remember. And we also, our time slot was like 10 o'clock at night. So we're doing, you know, Tuesday nights at from 10 to 11. Uh, you know, it's not, I don't think, I don't think, you know, many people are, are, are staying up for that. So nah, it's not prime time. But uh, we did the best we can with our little, you know, our little, our little gig, our little show. We uh, we had fun, and it, you know, Miles, it, it laid the groundwork for uh, for what me and you are, are are accomplishing right now with deep dives. So you know, you had to you had to start somewhere. You had to put right. it to work. There you go, starting a little radio, uh, little radio room, and now you're in a little studio room doing the podcast, right? There we go. <laughs> the, the the studio is nicer. But the same size. So I think the studios stay the same size, but the guests get bigger, like our guests right. today. Hundred percent, hundred. I was, I was not having Senator uh, Haskell in uh, in 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 my prior life as a as a high school radio host. <laughs> he would not be coming on that show. So no, no. and I wouldn't and I wouldn't blame him for not coming. <laughs> uh, so we're gonna be right back after this break uh, with Senator Will Haskell. And we are back on Deep Dives with our guest, Connecticut State Senator Will Haskell. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, be speaking with you. It's my pleasure. And uh, likewise, I'm very excited to have you on. So, you know, you've, you've at the age of, of 24, you've, you've already accomplished quite a, quite a bit, um, you know, with regards to, to your political career. Uh, tell me, was this you know, running for, you know, being a politician, was this something that, you know, your career trajectory that you, uh, was there a moment in your childhood where you said, you know, I want to be a politician? Was it kind of gradual? Uh, where did, take me back, where, where did this, this, uh, where did this all start? Sure. So I was always sort of interested in politics. I remember going up to New Hampshire to visit family during the 2007-2008 primary and and being inspired by that whole process. But, you know, like a lot of young people, I thought that I might want to get involved in politics one day. And it seemed like a, a distant future after I'd done, you know, a whole bunch of other normal things, maybe bought a home or, you know, gotten a, a, some other degree or started a family. But I'll tell you, it started for me the morning after Donald Trump's election. I was one of those people who went to bed early that night thinking that, uh, you know, Secretary Clinton had it locked up. And when I woke up in the morning, I was so shocked and, and, and horrified, frankly, that um, after having grown up under the Obama administration, when progress, even though we bitterly disputed how quickly progress would be made, forward momentum seemed inevitable. Now we were going to have to live under a president for the next four years who, you know, explicitly promised to take us backward, ran on a, on a platform of making America great again. 
So anyways, uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief and just say that in, in panicking about the Trump victory, I started to look into local and state politics. I recognized that no matter what happened in Washington, our state governments were going to be the first line of defense. So I looked at who represented me at town hall, who represented me at the state capitol. And I found out that my state senator was somebody who I, I intensely disagreed with on a whole host of issues. And more than that, it was somebody who nobody was planning to run against. She'd been in office for longer than I'd been alive, but there wasn't any opponent lined up to run against her. So long story short is I came back to my hometown and started knocking on doors. And I mean, it's just amazing. So you're, you're 22 years old, you're, you know, fresh out of college. And is there any, you know, is it literally as simple as, you know, knocking on doors? I mean, is there, I mean, you just literally just kind of threw yourself at this thing, right? There was no, um, you know, it's kind of just straight to the point, right? Yeah. I mean, let's get at it. Yeah. A lot of people did not think that uh, it made any sense to run, right? I mean, this was somebody who was yeah. deeply entrenched in Hartford. The district hadn't voted for a Democrat since 1976. So um, it was kind of a long shot. But I was also at a unique moment in my life, Matt. I was about to graduate from college. I was, you know, sort of hoping and planning to go to law school, but I realized that I could I could put that on hold for a moment and do this really unique thing that I thought was important in this in this historical moment uh, across the country. We saw a whole whole host of unlikely candidates. Uh, we saw more young people run for office. We saw more women women run for office. We saw more people of color run for office in uh, red states and blue states because they recognized that we needed to form a firewall against all of the the horror of the Trump administration. So anyways, all that to say that I hired my college roommate to be my campaign manager. I think nobody expected us to win, but we knew that it it was important to run anyways because elected officials, they should be they should be held accountable every two years. A core part of the democratic process is holding an incumbent's feet to the fire and making them explain their voting record. So even if we didn't think we would win, we thought it was important to do just that. And is is there a mo- was there a moment in 2018 during their campaign where, you know, you said, wait a second, you know, I could I could win this thing. There was was there was there one thing in particular that, you know, kind of, wow, you know, I really have a chance. You know, it was small things. It was a it, there wasn't a, an aha moment, but it was uh, coming walking into our campaign office one day and finding a dozen or so high school students who were sitting on beanbags, making telephone calls, competing with each other as to who could reach the most voters. Uh, it was waking up before sunrise and going to a train station and having, you know, an, an older, frankly, grumpy commuter saying, ah, you're that kid that my kid told me about, recognizing that, you know, word was getting out there and this race that otherwise would have been ignored, right? I mean, I grew up in, in town not knowing that I had a state senator all of a sudden was gaining a little bit of traction and a little bit more attention than it would in a, in a normal year. So uh, we slowly started to realize that, that we were building something pretty exciting. Um, but I think we were all shocked on election night, that's for sure. Right, right. And, and something that's you know, remarkable that happened, which I remember at the time, is, is the endorsement from, from uh, President Obama. Tell me about you know, where you were, you know, how, how that happened, how, you know, what was going through your head when, when, you, when you heard that you were getting uh, President Obama's endorsement? That was a pretty cool day. Um, <laughs> it, 
we didn't expect it. Obviously, you don't you don't ever I think expect something like that. We were just sitting in our office, which is kind of an, an old Chinese restaurant uh, that we'd rented out, and we were doing debate prep um, for a small district uh, of about a hundred thousand people in seven towns. We had something like you know ten debates more than more than a presidential <laughs> election. So we were constant. It felt like we were constantly doing debate prep, and uh, we were sitting there. And I got a call what, uh, from somebody in Hartford, letting me know that later that day, President Obama would be endorsing me, and. Uh, I, I remember calling my parents and my grandparents, uh, none of whom really believed it. They thought I was crazy. Uh, they thought I was crazy to run, and now they really thought I was crazy. But uh, it was so critical in in drawing attention to this race and, and letting people recognize that, you know, we all pay a lot of attention. And, and especially, I think, in the Democratic Party, we're susceptible to this. We pay so much attention to what's happening in D.C. We, we closely watch U.S. Senate races in Maine or in West Virginia or in North Carolina. We track the latest polling in presidential elections. And then we don't really pay any attention to our our local and state government, right? The folks who decide the safety of the roads that we drive on, the quality of the schools that we uh, send our kids to, we the the people who determine whether or not the air that we breathe and the water that we drink is clean and healthy. Um, we don't pay any attention to those state level policymakers. So I'm forever grateful that President Obama used his platform on the national level to draw attention to state politics, to draw attention to our race, but also a whole host of other candidates who are running to say that the issues you care about, a lot of them are, are actually being decided in state legislatures. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's gotta be the thrill, <laughs> thrill of a lifetime to, you know, there's, um, there's no one who, 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 who garners that much, um, you know, just goodwill and attention as, 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 especially in such a, the environment we're in right now as President Obama, that's for sure. So, um, so, so let's dive in a little bit into, you know, now you, you know, you've, you've, you won the uh, election and, and you're, you know, state senator, you represent District 26 in Connecticut. So let's talk a little bit about what it's like being a state senator. You know, maybe you could walk us through, you know, obviously not every day is going to be the same, but, you know, what's what's the typical day up in uh, up in Hartford like? Yeah, well, well, that's a fun question to answer because it's totally different from what I was expecting. I think that people um, <laughs> imagine that lawmakers, all they really do is is go and, and vote on bills. But um, a huge part of our job is just being in and around the community, hosting town hall meetings uh, where we can hear feedback from our constituents or, you know, these days because of the pandemic, hosting telephone town hall meetings where you can press zero and ask a question. Um, I actually love that part of the job because it, it's fun to engage with folks who disagree with you. Um, sometimes they convince me that I'm wrong. Sometimes I convince them that they're wrong. Probably most <laughs> often we just walk away from the conversation still not agreeing with each other, but but better understanding one another. So that's a core part of the job. And then the typical day, when students visit the Capitol, I often describe life in the legislature like this. Imagine you were signed up for, I'm on eight committees. So imagine you were signed up for eight classes, but instead of having like a, a rational uh, a school administration that scheduled classes one at a time, there was some mix up in the schedule. And for some reason, you had to be in chemistry at the same time as you had to be in uh, English. It, that happens every single day in the legislature. You're, you're voting <laughs> in the Judiciary Committee, but on your cell phone, you're listening in to what's happening in the Public Health Committee. And on your computer, you're watching the latest developments in the Transportation Committee. And when votes are called from one or the other, you, you, you jump out of your seat, or these days, since it's over Zoom, you X out of that window and open up a new window, and you go and, you go and vote <laughs> in that other committee. So it can be really hectic occasionally. But uh, I, I love it. I think that it's a, it's a really fun job for people who like to 
learn different things every day because 5,000 bills are proposed, a few hundred become law, and you're constantly learning mm. and listening in, in this job. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Mm. And I mean, what's I mean, so remarkable, you're, you know, you're 24 and, and you're the youngest member of, of the entire General Assembly. Does, does that present any, you know, challenges, you know, maybe being taken seriously? Or is there, are there any, you know, advantages that you've found to, you know, to being the youngest member of the of of the general assembly yeah so there are some small things i remember i, I went up to the the library in the legislature um when i was first elected and they uh, they mistaked me for an intern which was was no big deal obviously <laughs> um uh, there was a uh, the very first day in the senate actually the senate president a guy i really respect and admire uh, named marty looney who's actually been in the legislature since the 1980s he's he's an institution unto himself uh, he looked down at his tie and he said, oh, I'm wearing a tie today that's older than uh, our newest state senator. So the, ne the next <laughs> week I went out and I, uh, I bought a tie that was older than he was and gave it to him. Uh, actually, it was given to me by, by uh, another state representative. Anyways, all that to say that, uh, yeah, there, there's a ton of little sort of hic funny hiccups along the way. Um, I guess to answer your question about challenges, there are probably some colleagues who still don't take me seriously as a young person. Um, I run into that every once in a while. They, they have kids or, or grandkids who are 24 years old, and they, they can't exactly stomach the idea of sitting shoulder to shoulder with somebody my age in the committee room. But what I try to tell them is, you know, I, I don't pretend to have the experience that they do of uh, buying multiple homes or starting a small business or putting their kids through college. But I've got a different set of experiences. I I grew up in the public schools knowing what it's like to participate in school shooter drills. I know how hard it is for a family mm -hmm. to afford a degree in the 21st century. Um, I know just as a factor of, of my age and, and your age, Matt, that climate change for us, it's not an inconvenient truth or some academic anxiety. It's an existential threat to our ability to lead happy and healthy lives. Um, all that to say that I just, I, I think that the one role that I can play in the legislature, aside from representing the 100,000 people in my district, is representing um, a generation that's kind of left out of the policymaking process too often um, and, and giving voice to young people who I think would have a lot to say about the future of our state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, one, one of your great accomplishments already is that you're you're the chair of the Transportation Committee. And this one I have to ask you about because I never understood. I, every time a friend of mine would buy a Tesla, <laughs> they would go to New York and they would go to New York and they would go to wherever it was. It was never Connecticut. And I never put two and two together, but they were never buying Teslas and I guess Lucids, any of these EVs in Connecticut. Uh, tell us about it doesn't make any sense. It makes and, no sense. You know, I, I also have right? yet to put two and two together. So really quick background for those who aren't familiar with this issue. Uh, can, in Connecticut, there's only one way that you can sell, that you can buy a car, and it's through a car dealership. The problem is companies like Tesla or, or more recently Lucid and Rivian, electric car uh, manufacturers, they don't want to sell through a dealership. They want to sell directly to consumers. There are a few benefits to selling directly to consumers. One is that everybody gets the same pricing. There's, there can be no price discrimination. A lot of people just prefer to have you know, one price that, it, that everybody pays. Um, the, we've got 
such antiquated laws in the state of Connecticut, though, that we don't allow these companies like Lucid, like Tesla, like Rivian to sell directly to consumers. It's this really antiquated, it dates back to the 1930s, um, franchise law that really uh, protects the interests of car dealerships. So we're fighting like crazy to change that this year, as so many other states have done across the country, because we know that not only is consumer choice a good thing in a free market economy, you know, drivers should be able to purchase a car from a company of their choosing and in a manner of their choosing. But also, more critically important, the thing that, that gets me fired up about this bill is the fact that we should be doing in this state everything we can to get people behind the wheel of an electric vehicle, right? We, we've got a moral imperative to reduce carbon emissions, protect the next generation, protect our natural resources. And instead, we're putting up barriers that make it harder for people to get an electric car. Like you said, any Tesla that you see on the road in Connecticut, it was purchased out of state. Most of the people in my area drive to Mount Kisco, New York in order to pick up their car. Right. That's just crazy to me. Well, it's, it's a double win you know, if, if if you can get it passed, because you, you'll, you know, obviously Connecticut will get the revenue. Connecticut's missing out on all this tax revenue. You have Connecticut residents buying their cars in going to Mount Kisco. And then, right, it's an it's an environmental, um, you know, issue as well. So it seems like it's a really nice way, you know, kind of two birds with one stone. It's true. And what's interesting, Matt, is that uh, one thing that I love about this job is you get to compare it to 49 other examples. We don't operate in a vacuum. When we pass laws at the state mm. level, you know, we can look for examples of people to follow and, and examples of what to avoid. T more than 20 other states have already made the, I think the most recent was Colorado, have already made this change, allowing a company like Tesla that has an entirely electric fleet to sell directly to consumers. And the dealerships, I know because I talk to them constantly about this, they'll tell you that I dealerships will no longer be able to employ as many people in the state of Connecticut. We won't sell as many cars in the state of Connecticut. There won't be as many car dealerships in the state of Connecticut. But the examples from other states prove just the opposite. When, when states decide to you know, reduce this economic protectionism and instead uh, sort of support the fundamental premise of capitalism, which is the free market uh, benefits all in an economy, well, then uh, we see an increase in dealership employment, we see an increase in the number of dealerships, and we see an increase in the number of cars that are sold. So this, this chicken little routine has been going on for too long in Connecticut, where folks say that if we make this change, then the sky is going to fall. It's just not true elsewhere. And I can tell you it's not true because New York and Massachusetts and Rhode Island are all selling, all of our neighbors are selling Teslas directly to consumers. I, I don't know how Connecticut's better off with this antiquated law on the books. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem to me, you know, you just, every Tesla you see, with Connecticut plates, it's, you know, Connecticut didn't get a piece of the revenue. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, where does, where do you stand currently with, with that bill? Where, where, um, you know, what, do you see uh, any movement in the near future? Where's, where do we stand? Yeah, I think at? we've got a shot of changing it this year. This le legislation has been debated in Hartford long before I got there, years and years and years. And the only people who are benefiting from having this fight every year, frankly, are the lobbyists on either side. The car dealerships have really powerful lobbyists and the car companies mm -hmm. have really powerful lobbyists. We should just put it to bed once and for all this year. We've got a bill, Senate Bill 127 that I introduced alongside uh, State Representative Jonathan Steinberg. It passed out of the Transportation Committee. And what's pretty interesting, Matt, is a lot of times when things pass out of committee, they do so along party lines. 
This one, not so much. There were Democrats mm -hmm. who voted against this bill. There were Republicans who supported this bill. It's a real mix, I think. But the, the unifying thing that we hear from the folks who supported this bill is that they recognize that this is what the future looks like. And they want Connecticut to have a piece of that future rather than being stuck in the past. So the bill made it out of committee and now it's waiting to receive a vote in the full Senate. But the way, weird, weird way that the, the legislature works is we're on a time crunch. We've got to pass this bill by June 9th. So you know, to anyone listening out there, if they happen to live in Connecticut, reach out to your legislator and encourage them to support SB 127, because I could use the help in getting this thing across the finish line. Another issue you've been you've been vocal about is is a need to make voting more accessible to everyone. And, you know, obviously this is this is the hot button issue. We you know, we saw what happened in Georgia and and of course, uh, you know, during the 2020 campaign. You know, in, in your in your opinion, in your mind, how do we expand voting uh, to, you know, make it accessible to everyone, but at the same time, you know, ensure the integrity people know that, you know, they're going to the polls that, you know, every vote's going to be counted. This is a, a, another great example where we can look to other states for good ideas and bad ideas. Um, I would put Georgia's recent voter uh, law that makes it illegal to give people water while they're waiting in line. I'd put that in the bad idea <laughs> category. But uh, 40 other states around the country offer early voting. Early voting is, you know, a, a few days before Election Day, giving a little bit of flexibility rather than just providing one Tuesday in November. Having only one Tuesday in November makes it inconvenient for uh, commuters, makes it inconvenient for students, seniors, people with disabilities, uh, single working parents, a host of folks. Um, and when, when you pass early voting, you see that democracy becomes bigger, more people participate. And I think that when democracy becomes bigger, it also becomes better. The, the people in office are more representative, not just uh, of those who happen to have the time to show up on election day, but of the whole of uh, the electorate. All that to say that Connecticut is is not in the 40 category. It's in the it's in the 10 category. We're one of just 10 states without early voting, and we're fighting really hard to change that this year. It's one of a whole host of voting reforms that we're working on. I think you should be able to request absentee ballots through a secure online portal. I think you should be able to vote by absentee uh, from the safety and comfort of your own home if you prefer to do so. But uh, the one that I think is most fundamental, most overdue, it's just following the example of red states and blue states by bringing early voting to Connecticut. And by the way, Texas has like 30 days of early voting or something. I think West Virginia has two weeks of early voting. This isn't a, a capital D Democratic Party idea. This is a lowercase d a democracy idea. Mm. And it's so interesting. I mean, Connecticut, you know, pretty progressive state. Why, why did Connecticut, I mean, why is Connecticut so far behind like a Texas, which you would think would be much more prohibitive? Is it just kind of deadlock in the legislature all these it's years, a hard or? question to answer but i think it comes down to uh this nickname that we have connecticut is often called the land of steady habits we it's so hard mm -hmm. to change ways in connecticut uh, it, w whenever you're talking about uh just about any issue you know we're, we <laughs> one of the crazier bills <laughs> in the legislature this year is whether or not funeral homes should be allowed to serve coffee or bagels, uh, because right now I think we're the only state in the country that only permits them to sell water. We're just, we're, we're stuck in our ways and, but not sell it. I should have said serve, but we're, we're stuck in our ways right. in a, in, on a variety of issues. And this is certainly one of them. Yeah. We're the land of steady habits, but some, some of those habits are bad ones. And I would put this in that camp. Mm. 
Wow, that that's some um, that funeral. <laughs> that's that's that's. Can you that's believe that? You, you never know what you're going to find on the average day in the legislature. I'm like, what are we talking about today? Funeral homes, you know? Because <laughs> it keeps you on your toes. Always something. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, two two other hot button uh, issues. I want to I want to get your get your thoughts on. Get your see where you stand. Sports uh, betting and online gambling. Um, I, I saw that you know there there are some bills in the works um where you know what's what's your thoughts on on that i you know obviously a lot of it's you know a lot of states have have um have allowed it and uh, seems to be a huge huge uh, revenue generator sure my overall thought here is that uh, our neighbors are making a lot of money uh, off of this right now in neighboring states where sports betting and online gambling is legal uh, they're seeing a tremendous amount of revenue, and Connecticut is is missing out on those opportunities. I've got a lot of friends in Connecticut who engage in sports betting. They just do so illegally, without any consumer protections, and without giving any revenue to the state. And, and speaking of consumer protections, I think a, a benefit of online gambling and, and sports betting is that it's actually a little bit easier to monitor um, problematic behavior. If somebody goes into a store and buys some lottery tickets, there's no record that that happened, really. So they can go into another store and buy a few more lottery tickets. And there are no flags that are raised. But if somebody is consistently buying and, you know, very likely consistently losing on the lottery, uh, well, then it's possible. And I think ought to be required in the legislation that we passed that the software ping them and say, hey, maybe it's time to take a break. Maybe it locks them out temporarily of the system. We can address problem and, and addictive, problematic and addictive behavior uh, through enhanced uh, technology. And, um, yeah, the, you know, Governor Lamont is really optimistic that we're going to be able to put in place sports betting by the time uh, the NFL season rolls around. What I'm optimistic about is the fact that this new revenue is going to allow us to invest in, in educational initiatives. That's been a long overdue promise in Connecticut, that money that we make off the lottery is going to be spent on kids. It's going to be spent on students. The legislature failed to live up to that promise for many, many years. But I worked hard to pass uh, a program in Connecticut called the PACT program. It's essentially a free community college program for Connecticut residents, but it needs funding in order to be successful, in order to welcome, it, it, it helped 3,000 students go to school this year, but in order to help thousands mm. and thousands more in the years to come, it needs a reliable revenue stream. Online gambling, that would bring in more than enough money to fund our debt-free community college initiative. Um, so that's really what excites me about this. Yeah, no, that that's that's a nice way to, um, you know, to take, you know, an, an issue that obviously needs funding and and just kind of plug it in, uh, plug it in right there. So that that seems to be a a, a nice win win. Um, another another one that a lot of people are talking about. We we see what you know what what the state of New York just did is is marijuana and and their decision their decision to uh to legalize it where do you where do you stand on on the legalization of i just voted in favor of it earlier this week um in the judiciary committee largely because a similar principle here i know a lot of people in the state of connecticut who are consuming cannabis and when they decide to do so they're purchasing that product on an unregulated and on an illegal market um that that cannabis might be laced with fentanyl or other dangerous drugs that they don't even know they're mm -hmm. consuming it, it could and it has led to overdose uh, scenarios. So 
uh, I think that the benefit of legalization is regulation. We can make sure that we don't make the mistakes again uh, that our country once made with regard to tobacco. In included in the legislation that we passed out of the, out of the Judiciary Committee are strict advertising regulations so that they can't market these products towards young people. There's an age limit to keep cannabis out of the hands of, of students and teenagers. There are provisions that say that uh, THC has to be capped so that the product itself is actually safer. People know what they're consuming. Um, we're giving law enforcement greater tools to make sure that they can crack down on those who drive while impaired, which is incredibly dangerous. So I think that all of the consumer protections and, and regulations that come with legalization are really the, the benefit to moving forward and, and moving in that direction. It seems, I mean, there's, there's so many parallels between sports betting and online gambling and, and, and marijuana and cannabis marijuana in that it seems like with both, they're very similar in that you're kind of taking something that, that in, been in the shadows for a long time, there's a stigma obviously. And you're kind of just, you know, bringing this, bringing it to the light, to the light of day where, you know, where, where it probably belongs. Um, you know, it seems like, you know, and obviously when it's in the light of day, there's a lot more, um, you know, oversight. Yeah, that I think happen. that's exactly right. And and once again, it's an example where some states have done this better than others, and we should follow the we should follow the good examples here, and we can, and and I think we will. All right. So, with regards to COVID, um, you know, Connecticut recently opened up vaccinations to sixteen and above. Seems like you know shots in arms are are coming in fast and furious across the country. Uh, where do you stand? Where do you are you optimistic right now with regards to to COVID? Um, you know, obviously there's the variants. It's it's, it's there. You know, you know, you kind of take it day by day. It seems like, but it does seem like the vaccine rollout uh, has been. Um, you know, rather successful, at least in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think Connecticut's done a pretty good job of getting shots into arms in a manner that's efficient. Uh, of course, we've got some strides to make to make sure that it's equitable. But uh, I, overall, to answer your question, I'm feeling optimistic. Here's what's on my mind, though. I think that a lot of people our age, um, they tend to feel kind of invincible or immune to COVID-19. Right. We know that uh, college students sometimes procrastinate. I certainly did. Uh, young people, they, they aren't necessarily feeling an urgency in terms of getting their appointment to get vaccinated. Um, but I think that's a huge mistake. We know that this virus, it uses young bodies. Even if we don't get sick ourselves, uh, COVID-19 travels through us and then it reaches our more vulnerable family members. It, it reaches the grandparents and the parents who we love. Or, or it, by the way, it reaches the teacher and the and the students in our classroom who can't get vaccinated, maybe because they have an underlying condition. So I really think that um, we've all got to do our, our civic duty here by signing up to get the vaccine and not, not waiting for uh, some time that's necessarily the most convenient, but just take a little bit of time out of your day and get that appointment and get your shot or get your shots. I got my uh, very first dose uh, just a few days ago, and it couldn't have been more convenient I, I, they said you're going to have a little bit of soreness in your arm. I haven't felt this good in a year, knowing that I'm vaccinated and, and doing my part <laughs> to help end this virus. So uh, for folks who are in Connecticut, visit ct.gov slash COVID vaccine or visit the site in the state in which you live to uh, make sure that you, that you get that shot as soon as you're eligible. Right. I mean, there, there's certainly it seems like the one thing that could really hold us back, you know, obviously, the 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 vaccines are are effective but you know you do worry about people um 
you know, not, you know, choosing, making the decision, especially like you said, I, a lot of people our age, twenties, thirties, who, um, who either they feel like they're invincible or, you know, they, they, they just, um, you know, have made that decision at least now that, that it's not, it's not for them. So I think, um, you know, that, that's certainly, that's certainly something that's critical. Is, is that, I mean, it really seems like it's almost like a, like a PR yeah. campaign. Right? I, I, I mean, I feel like that's exactly yeah. right. But the frustrating yeah. thing is, look, the state's putting out ads on TV. I think we're putting out ads on Instagram. We're doing everything we can to get, we're, we're sending out mobile clinics and next week there are going to be clinics on college campuses and even high schools for those over the age of 16. But there's nothing more impactful than getting a text from your friend or seeing a post on Instagram from somebody mm -hmm. you know and admire, a classmate or a colleague. I'm not cool enough to have a TikTok, but if you are, you should TikTok. You know, having your <laughs> getting your vaccine because it's those it's those more organic social pressures that I think are going to inspire people to to sign up and get their get their appointment on the books. So so before we wrap up, well, so t so let's say I'm. Um, I'm fresh out of college. I'm, you know, 21, 22, and I want to get involved in, in politics. You know, I, 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 I look at your story and, you know, I'm listening to this interview and, and, and I'm fired up and as Obama said, fired up and ready to go. What, what, what do you do? What, what would your advice be to someone, um, you know, to, uh, you know, take yourself, you know, a couple of years ago, that, that type of person, what's, what, what can that, you know, that um, young man or woman do to uh, to get involved? Awesome question. Um, you know, it shouldn't have taken Donald Trump's election for me to recognize that state politics mattered and that there were some really important things uh, being decided every single day in rooms that where young people weren't necessarily represented. Uh, I hope that it doesn't take catastrophic uh, incidents to help other people make that same uh, realization. So I would just say that I know a lot of people want to go and work on presidential campaigns. They want to go and work on, you know, glitzy, big races. I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I wanted those internships too. In fact, I did, uh, I, I interned, I, I remember for the Clinton campaign doing uh, coat checks at their fundraisers and it was really cool. But I can also tell you that if you go and you sign up to work for a down ballot race, uh, somebody running for first selectman or mayor, somebody running for state representative or state senator, you might be the only one in that campaign office, or they might be so short staffed that you'll be in charge of debate prep. You'll be in charge of drafting the website. You'll be in charge of running social media, uh, of vetting policy priorities. All of those things were responsibilities that fell to our interns because we just didn't have a big staff. So if you're looking for a, a job in politics, sort of behind the scenes, you know, Please consider working on a down ballot race. I say this selfishly, of course, because we always I'm a down ballot candidate and we always need help. But no matter what state or community you're in, I guarantee there's a down ballot campaign that could really use your insights and where you'll have a, a much more substantive and valuable role. And then if you're interested in running for office, know that when you step forward, uh, you're going to turn around and find an army of young people behind you. There's such a generational excitement about making sure that that uh, our perspective is heard as we make decisions about what our community and country are gonna look like for the next 10, 20, 50 years. Um, I was so grateful that so many young people stepped forward to help me and I talk to other young candidates all the time. They have that very same experience. So uh, I, I, those who are just sort of teetering and not sure if they're gonna take that leap of faith, please do it, please run for office and don't wait for one day because we don't have the luxury of, uh, of waiting around too much longer. Mm. 
Millennials are fearless. That's we know that. <laughs> they, 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 they like to they go for it. They go for it. <laughs> so so you're you personally will, you know, you're 24, you're you're the chair of the transportation committee. Uh, you know, obviously some great accomplishments already. Have you thought about what's next or, you know, uh, where, you know, where, where politics might take, you know, the, the very honest answer is I don't even know what I'm doing next week. Um, every day is kind of a surprise <laughs> in the legislature and it's, it's hard for me right now to think kind of beyond all the things that I'm trying to get done in Hartford. I know that I really love politics and, uh, I hope to, to stay involved in one way or another. I also know that running for office every two years is exhausting. And I think I would probably uh, go insane if I did this uh, running for office thing constantly uh, for the rest of my life. So I have no idea what's in store. Um, I, I wish I had an answer for you. But for now, I'm, I'm laser focused on, on using this opportunity that my community has given me and just trying to pass as many good bills as possible. Is is law is law school on the table? Yeah, I would still that, love to go to law school. A... My girlfriend's wrapping up her third year uh, as we speak. She's going to graduate pretty soon, and having watched her go through that process, I thought uh, everything that she was working on sounded so interesting. So, I would uh, I would love to do that in the future. We'll see. Got it. So, where can people? You know, our listeners. I'm sure they're going to want to they're, they're going to want to see more and hear more. Where can people go? Uh, you know, to hear you speak and, and learn about your initiatives? Oh, well, that's a, a great question to get. Uh, check out uh, my Twitter, Will Haskell CT, my Instagram, Will Haskell for CT. I, uh, I, I post uh, a lot of Connecticut content, but I think for folks outside of Connecticut who, um, you know, are not sure why in the world they would want to know what a random state senator is up to, a goal of mine is to try to sort of lift the curtain on government. Let like I said, I grew up not knowing that I had a state senator, let alone knowing what state senators did. The The first time I visited the Capitol, uh, it was practically the time that I was being sworn in as a state senator. So I try to use my Instagram to give people insights on what it actually looks like to pass a bill into law. Here, here are the the various steps that uh, a piece of legislation has to go through. Here's what the bill actually looks like. Because by the way, bills are still, you know, in the land of steady habits, bills are still physical pieces of paper um, until they're signed into law mm. by the governor. Anyways, um, if you check out my Instagram, I try to give people that, that behind the scenes look and maybe it'll be interesting to some folks. Well, yeah. And I, I think, you know, I, I follow you on, 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 on the various socials. And I think, you know, why it's so valuable is exactly what you just said. And I think it goes back to, you know, kind of the advantages, disadvantages of, of someone your age. I think one of the great advantages is you're, you're able, you know, the, the elder statesman in the Senate, uh, you know, might not understand the value of being on Twitter, of being on Instagram, of being on Facebook. And I think, you know, that I would, I think you'd agree that that's probably been a big part of your, your success is you've you've been able to really put yourself out there in this, you know, in in this new medium that um, I think a lot of probably the old guard is uh, either don't understand or you know don't. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I think it's made me a better uh, made me a better state senator because every week or so I mm -hmm. post about a dozen bills that we're voting on in the state senate, and I ask people on Instagram to to vote yay or nay. Tell me how how they would decide uh, and. I learn a ton about where my community stands. Um, it's really fun. Sometimes it surprises me to see where my, of course, it's a, it's a narrow sample size, but where my Instagram followers come down on various pieces of legislation. And it helps me make, uh, I think, better, more representative decisions when I get back to Hartford.
Mm. Yeah, you get that real that real time. Uh, instead, I guess that's that's the, the beautiful thing and the dangers of social. <laughs> we'll save that for 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 another show. But uh, you know, but social media certainly there there's there's you have an ability for that instant connection, instant uh, information in terms of you know the uh, as a tool that. Uh, certainly is, is unrivaled. Um, so I, um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, I, I certainly learned a lot and, uh, it was really fun speaking with you and stay healthy. Most importantly. Thank you for listening to this episode of deep dives with our guest, Senator Will Haskell. Deep Dives can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Deep Dives.